Stories about historic rain and flooding in the U.S. Midwest, catastrophic wildfires in Australia, and massively destructive hurricanes in the Caribbean can make it seem as though the weather is out of control. They can also spawn arguments about how much of this is part of the normal ebb and flow of the Earth's life cycle and how much of it is actually the result of a changing climate. Today's Stats and Stories explores what it means to say we're observing extreme environmental events. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism and Film. We have two guests joining us today. The first is Colorado State University statistics professor Dan Cooley. Dan, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is Michael Weiner, senior staff scientist in the Computational Research Division at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Thank you so much for joining us as well today, Michael. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Late last year, the two of you co-authored an editorial arguing that climate science needs more professional statisticians, why did the two of you feel compelled to write that? The article came out of some discussions we had at the JSM in Vancouver in 2018, where there were several sessions on statistics and climate. And one of the recurring themes in these sessions and in discussions I'd had with, with Michael was the challenge we've had in trying to get uh, statistical expertise involved in climate science and, and in, in integrating the, the latest and greatest methods to answer climate questions. And so Michael and I uh, sat down at that JSM and, and started to, to hash out this article, which took us some, some time to, to put together. But I think that was the start of it anyway. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that, you know, I'm not a statistician um, and not trained formally that way. Um, but climate is, you know, the statistics of weather, mm -hmm. and um, you know, weather is the uh, the day to day noise we live in, and climate is sort of the overall description of of that weather, whether it be the average or the tails of distributions or however you want to phrase it. And um, I've found in the last five, seven years, maybe that my interactions with professional statisticians, trained statisticians, has been extremely fruitful. Hmm. And, and part of it is keeping me out of trouble <laughs> uh, by, you know, not misusing statistics. I mean, you know the old saying about statisticians and liars. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, one doesn't want to be the liar. Um, but beyond that, um, we've been able to apply much more contemporary uh, techniques, statistical techniques, to um, uh, the, the climate science, um, in particular in, in, in my work with uh, extreme temperature and extreme precipitation, that uh, the climate science community didn't know about, can't really know about, because it, they're not really privy to that literature. And so the collaboration is between statisticians and, and probably any physical scientist um, is, can be extremely rewarding. It is, however, not easy because we speak a different language. Um, I, I like sound like English, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked how you, uh, as part of the, the article that you were writing, tied to, to the analogy of the, the biostat 
collaboration and, and methodological work in biomedicine and public health. I thought that was a nice model. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, that, that discipline, the, the interaction between statistics and, and biomedical research is, uh, is, is just taken for granted now. And, and it certainly biomedical research would not be where it is today without the, the statistical contributions to, to show what are meaningful advances and, and, and what aren't. And that um, assumed or default uh, collaboration in, in that discipline is, is really, I, I think, not necessarily what you find in, in climate science and, and probably a, a lot of other sciences as well. But as, uh, as Michael said, climate if, if we describe climate as the distribution of weather, then then it's inherently statistical, and and uh, and and so statisticians are are needed at the beginning when designing the the um, the study or the, the 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 science plan, and 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 throughout the study until uh, you know drawing statistical conclusions and then making uh, important uh, inference or meaningful. Um, statements about the science uh, at, at the at the end of the study. So um, I think that way of thinking is something we'd like to uh, see more of in uh, in in climate science. So I, I'm kind of interested in um, uh, I, in one of the articles I read about extreme value analysis. Can you talk a little bit about that and? And extreme weather, just in general, because I think this is the the area that you're really interested in. Yeah, I think it's the the interest the area for for both of us, and I'll describe it kind of from a, a statistical side and try to do it briefly, and then Michael can can chime in from the from the climate science side. But uh, there's um, extreme value theory is um, it's 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 nicely based on very uh, formal probabilistic results that tell us how to describe the tail of the of the distribution, and that's what we're interested in uh, when we try to describe extreme events. Classically, people have tried to describe things like uh, the the so-called hundred-year flood or the the the, the, the that that uh, quantile which the annual maximum will exceed with probability one one hundredth in a, in a given year, and and people have had less than 100 years to, to make those estimates. And so extrapolation has been something that's been needed to do in, uh, to, to solve practical problems. And extrapolation is something that, that statisticians are naturally wary of because we're told early in, on in our statistics classes <laughs> not to extrapolate. Um, but there is nice theory that tells us the right way to do that, that the, the tail of the distribution should be converging to a, a specific type of distribution. So the practice of extreme value theory is to start with that, that those probabilistic foundations and then fit models described by that. And, and we do it in, in an unusual way where we throw away the bulk of the data. The, the idea mm -hmm. being that, at least heuristically, that the, the, the bulk of the data, the usual sorts of day-to-day um, -day weather phenomena, if we're studying weather, tell us very little about the, the tail. And in fact, if we fit a model to the entire distribution, there's so much data there in the middle that we can miss the tail of the mm -hmm. distribution dramatically. And so in practice, the, the, the classical approach is to keep a very small subset of data in the tail and fit one of these models from the, the theory that allows us to say intelligent things about 
a hundred year flood, even if we've got only 40 years of data. And of mm -hmm. course, not only is when, when I say intelligent things, it's not only that point estimate, but also the uncertainty associated with that. And, and there are, are large uncertainties when, when one is extrapolating. And I think that's part of the, the story that, that classical extreme value theory can, can, can do very well. So I, I stumbled across extreme value theory about 20 years ago. Uh, I started asking some statisticians about it, and there weren't too many who knew much um, that I knew. And um, But I stumbled across some books, and I tried to understand that as best I could. And and, um, and then all of a sudden, out of you know, the blue, as far as I was concerned, there were some papers by uh, Francis Swears and Slava Karin, um, who were at that time at Environment Canada. And the way they framed the question of, uh, of, of changes in extreme precipitation and changes in extreme temperature through extreme value theory um, methods struck struck a chord with me, and and I realized right away that this is the way we needed to go because um, the, the 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 rather elegant statistical theory would allow us to do those kinds of extrapolations that we have to do because of the limited record of. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the observations um, we can we can run models for a lot longer, climate models for a lot longer, and, and and make up for some of that. But the observational record is by 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 its nature limited, and and the reason that I thought this was so important is because the way that people are affected by the weather, or the, or the way they're adversely affected by the weather anyway, is usually when there's some extreme storm. Mm -hmm. It could be a very big heat wave, where uh, people get sick or die. Or it could be a big, big rainstorm where they're flooded out, or a drought, or or what have you. You know, and as climate change uh, continues to um, uh, uh, increase, you know, things are getting warmer all the time. It seems um, the part of the manifestation of climate change is through changes in extreme weather. And given that this is, you know, such an impactful. Thing uh, that that extreme value theory gave us a, a rigorous way to to quantify. Mm -hmm. You know, bioscience is is obviously a much larger industry than climate science, um, which is largely uh, funded academically um, um, at national laboratories and um, and uh, universities, um, rather than, than than large corporate interests. Um, but a lot of the problems are very similar. And in fact, uh, one of the um, more recent developments in climate scientist, science is uh, called extreme event attribution. And in extreme event attribution, what we try to do is look at individual weather events, like, say, Hurricane Harvey, mm -hmm. and um, uh, ascertain what effect the climate change that's already happened has impacted that individual storm. And this was a, a, a rather remarkable development that, that came about um, actually after the 2003 European heat wave um, that has 70,000 excess deaths attributed to it, um, where, where people were asking, you know, how much worse is this because mm -hmm. of climate change? And mm -hmm. this has been extended now to a whole class of, of extreme weather, you know, heat waves being the, the first uh, uh, flooding and now hurricanes um, being sort of the state of the art. And these techniques we really borrowed from epidemiology. Oh, hmm. okay. And so um, in some ways um, it's not new mm -hmm. in terms of um, the, the statistics and the math, but the, uh, 
the application is certainly certainly uh, mm -hmm. uh, new and, uh, and and I believe very important. Oh, very cool. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking statistics, weather, and climate with Dan Cooley of Colorado State University and Michael Weiner of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. So clearly, you both have written and spoken about the uh, impact of, of humans' contribution to climate change. That's been a, a, a big part of it. When, when was the first, what, what was the first evidence that there might be human impact on climate change? Well, that's actually very old. Um, uh, this is uh, not rocket science. It's steam engine science. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the recognition that, uh, that greenhouse gases, what we call greenhouse gases, uh, carbon dioxide and other um, uh, uh, radiatively active um, uh, gases in the atmosphere affected the climate goes back into the 19th century. But it was Svante Arrhenius in 1904 who first phrased the problem at hand, which was, if you increase the amount of carbon dioxide, um, how much will the climate change? Mm. And what he asked the question is, if you doubled the, the amount of carbon dioxide, how much warmer would it, would it get? And uh, he came up with an answer of um, five degrees centigrade um, for the global temperature. And in the uh, most recent IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, um, we now call that that, uh, that quantity the equilibrium climate sensitivity, and the IPCC report gave a range, a, like, a very likely range of uh, two degrees to five degrees centigrade. Mm. So Arrhenius is at the upper end um, of that report. Although this most recent report is is almost certainly going to uh, increase that upper range, yeah. and so this is not new stuff. Mm. Mm -hmm. My question has to do with a lot of the work that you guys do gets translated to the general public through journalists and do you have do you feel a particular responsibility to communicate with policymakers the public uh what do we need to know that you're doing that's not getting to the public mm -hmm. and not getting to it in ways that we need to know about it um so Michael's probably more on the front line of this than I, and so uh, I'll, it'll it'd be interesting to, to hear his take on it. As, as a, an academic statistician, I, I, I feel a little bit removed from the public interaction with the, 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 uh, our, our currency in academia is to, to produce papers, and often those are in, in statistics journals, mm -hmm. and so we're trying to, to push methodology, but we're also trying to push methodology that will, will or, or innovate methodology that will um, make its way that will that will be useful for people answering answering climate questions and and certainly I have written papers which try to answer those those climate questions too but still it seems maybe I'm a, a, a little bit removed one of the um, most interesting inter direct interactions I've had with the public or with policymakers was to um, I, I attended uh, Climate Science Day back in, in 2016 as a member of the ASA's uh, Committee mm -hmm. on Climate Change Policy. And that is an opportunity where scientists uh, all, uh, from all sorts of branches of science who are, direct, who are studying uh, climate change go and uh, visit uh, people on Capitol Hill and, and really tell our story. And, and, and at that time, the story essentially was um, 
we're doing very good science. We're here as a resource to you policymakers, and and please reach out to us to to get the the, the best uh, information you can from from science. And that was a really eye opening experience for me. I'm, I'm certain that I learned more by my visit to to Capitol Hill than than they learned from me. But uh, it was um, th th I think that message of the science we're doing is is very good science, and and the, and the scientific discipline in this nation works, and and the the answers that we're coming up with are the um, are extremely well founded and and justified, and they're and that we're describing the system as best we can, and we'd love to serve as a resource to the policymakers when it comes time to ask questions of the science to, 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 um, to influence policy. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm just a geek with access to very good computing at a very good national laboratory. <laughs> and, and, um, and I am not supposed to be on TV. But I've seen you on TV. Yeah. We, I, we all have. You did yeah, a great I'm job. You know, that's... And, and let me tell you, there is nothing quite so terrifying <laughs> <laughs> on CNN. Um, and, you know, as a result of that experience, which I never expected would ever happen, um, I, I advise young scientists all the time, take the media training. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, the American Geophysical Union um, offers or the, um, uh, the American Meteorological Society um, uh, and probably uh, the American Statistical Association. But in any event, these, these media training courses, I think, are, um, are, 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 I wish I'd had them. I think that would mm -hmm. really have helped um, because our message is important mm -hmm. and um, it, is, it is policy relevant, relevant to individuals' lives. It's, it's particularly relevant to our children and our grandchildren. And, um, you know, talking to the, to the media is difficult. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I learned early on that I, I, I tend to, um, to be too jargony and, mm -hmm. um, and explaining what would appear on the surface to be complex, um, topics, um, in, in a, uh, in plain English is actually quite a challenge. Mm -hmm. The, the aspects of uncertainty and the communicating that it seems to, to be a particular challenge. I mean, I, you, you report you know, you've written more than one half of global mean temperature since 1951 can be attributed to human impact, but actually you argue beyond that that it supports that all, all change could be due to human impact in this. And, you know, that there's, there's arguments that are based on models and on confidence bounds and lower bounds exceeding certain levels. I mean, that, that, there's a lot of nuance to, to this story. And, you know, is this, is this nuance part of the place where, where people will, will base their objection to some of the assertions that are made about human contribution to, to climate change? Well, that, that particular statement, I, I, I was part of writing that um, for the U.S. National Climate Assessment. And climate scientists have ten generally tended, I think, um, maybe, maybe could be faulted for being rather conservative. Mm -hmm. And so we would talk about, you know, the lower bound on confidence intervals. You know, at least half the warming is attributed to humans, statements like that. When in fact... Um, and this is what we tried to do in the fourth national assessment. And our best estimate is that all of the climate change that's been observed wow. is due to humans. Mm -hmm. And in fact, our, our, um, 
are very likely bound is that 90 to 120 percent is is uh, is uh, due to climate change. In fact, of the observed climate change is due to humans. And and um, you know you might even ask, well, why would it be more than 100 percent? And that's because there could be phenomena that would be uh, natural phenomena that would be trying to cool us. And so um, it is a subtle point. We do have um, a, what we call the calibrated language, which is inherently, um, well, it's sort of two parts. Um, there's the likelihood language and the confidence language. And the likelihood language is when we say something, and Dan may want to chime in on this, if we say that a statement is very likely, um, that, some, that some phenomena, that some amount of anything is very likely, we, we're saying that that's a, a, a 90% chance of that statement being, being true. And then we have the confidence language where we would say, which is much more of a um, subjective statement that, you know, that we have high confidence that this is very likely or something of that nature. And so we do have a language that is supposed to translate from the, the technical part of it to something that's plain English. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I do think that it's something that, that could be improved, however. So... When, I, when I've taught journalism classes in the past, we talk about a, the, this notion of false balance that journalists often say you're supposed to go out and get two sides to every story. And climate change is one of those ones where there may not be two sides. We're, we have dramatic climate change. And we, we ask them often to, you know, get a number of sources, find the best evidence. You know, you've got to demonstrate in your story that, that uh, there are documents and there are the evidence that show this. My, I always wonder, sometimes I've heard people say, well, for if you do this right, you're going to go out and interview 98 climate scientists who know that there's been climate change and it's attributable to humans, and you're going to find 2% who don't believe that. I want to know who those guys are. <laughs> who are those 2% of the climate scientists that don't believe it? And are there? I mean, is this, um, why are we having this debate? I guess I always just wonder why this got so politicized. That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the answer is, is, um, is pretty simple. I mean, you know, I, you go to some talk and you hear about, uh, you know, the, the evidence for gravity waves and, you know, people sit there and they listen about this rather dramatic and very bizarre phenomena that is quite now, I think, uh, um, well accepted. But you talk about climate change and you talk about the weather. Everybody thinks they know about the weather. <laughs> you don't experience gravity waves, but you experience weather. Uh -huh. And so there's a preconception that, you know, you're just going to have to have because you're human. Um, but beyond that, there also are, um, climate change doesn't come without significant costs, mm -hmm. whether you do something or you don't do something, um, it, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of, um, of, uh, of, uh, anxiety, mm -hmm. people's lives, but in ways that other kinds of, of, um, of more esoteric branches of science don't. Yes. Yeah, and just getting back to your, your comment, Richard, about the, the, the journalistic balance, I mean, I think that if a, if a layperson is, is watching a, a news program and they have uh, two scientists um, arguing different, different sides of climate change, well, 
the, the, the layperson is going to assume that that, that represents a representative mm -hmm. sample of yeah. climate scientists. Yes. And, we, and we know that that's not true, right? So mm -hmm. um, the, there, I think the misperception can, can arise from that. And the, just reflecting back on, we were talking about uncertainty before, and, and, and Michael talked about the, the language that, that IPCC uses of, of when they attribute something as, as, as very, very likely, it's 95%, it's, it's correct? Very likely, Michael, corresponds to 95%. Is that right? I'd have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 uh, that can be a homework assignment for listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Michael talked about the, the calibrated language, and, the, and, and right in the IPCC, they will denote very likely indicates such and such percent, and likely mm. indicates such and such percent. And yeah. It's a way of trying to, to uh, speak about uncertainty in language that, that captures it for for policymakers and for, for people that the, the IPCC report is, is supposed to, to reach. Um, and this is, this is not a, a, an idea that's new to anybody on the statistics side of things. Talking mm -hmm. about uncertainty is very difficult. We, we are in, the, in our community, we're in the midst of, of talking about it yet again, mm -hmm. uh, nearly 100 years later with, with the, all the, the discussion about significance and, and p-values mm -hmm. and and how to uh, that? Uh, I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with a p-value, so long as the person who hears the the, the p-value reported understands what it is. But I, mm -hmm. I think that the misuse of p-values and, and has um, at least partially arises from people misunderstanding the idea of, of significance, and mm -hmm. and, um, and so. Uncertainty is incredibly difficult to, to talk about it, and people, you know, Michael was saying one of the challenges, the, the reason there's opposition to, to climate change is doing something about climate change means making changes in the way that uh, we live our day-to-day -day lives and the way that society is structured, and, and so before people want, are willing to do that or are, are eager to do that, they'd, they'd love to talk about things with with certainty and in science we're trained not to do that yeah. mm -hmm. and so the um we're, we're trained to convey how wh what we're very certain about and, and what we're not and, and i think that the public can take those qualifiers of of uncertainty and run with them and say well then we shouldn't act and and right. uh, i mm -hmm. think that it's very clear that the costs of not acting, uh, even, we, well, let, let me put it this way. We act with uncertainty in almost every decision we, we make in our, mm -hmm. in our day to day lives. And, and the, the, the conclusions that are being made about uh, our changing climate are pretty darn certain. And so we, we, we can act, even given the, the levels of uncertainty that, that do exist. And, and I think that they imply a, um, a, a direction that, and it, it's something that policymakers and 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 lay people can can understand and act. 
So I'm going to close with a real quick question, or at least I'm going to, I'm trying to close with a quick question, but Rosemary may hit me anyway. Um, so uh, <laughs> if you could, so I'm going to ask you two things. One is, if you could change one thing to try to mitigate the adverse climate change, what would it be? That's the first part. And what should a student do if they want to join you in working on this problem? We said one question, John. Well, it was, it was a, you didn't say it couldn't be a compound question. Come on. Uh, how about I take the second one and, and uh, Michael takes the first? Perfect. I, as, as far as a, a student, if, if if the student is, is interested in statistics, I think this this paper that we that we this this opinion piece that we wrote talked about you know the need for for climo statisticians mm -hmm. like climate mm -hmm. statisticians, yes. and, and I think that there are lots of entry points for uh, students to to do meaningful statistics that that can then be applied to answer very important questions in climate science, and hopefully there will be. Um, increasing role for well-trained statisticians to really be part of scientific teams studying the big the big questions. So um, that's sort of a long-winded answer to, to study hard and do good things. <laughs> what was the first part of the question? <laughs> the first part is if, if you could if you could do one thing to impact the this this adverse trend, what would it be? Well the problem is there isn't one thing. There's okay. no magic point. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that you know scientists like like Dan and I do not have the responsibility to make decisions about um, what we should do as a society. That's not the role of scientists. The role of scientists is to inform and have the public make the decisions that it wants um, based on the best information through its elected officials, and um, and and. If there is only one thing, it's to make sure that the information that the public gets is of the highest quality, is as honest as can be, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, that may be where the biggest problem is, is that um, there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there um, from special interest groups that feel for one reason or another that the most widely accepted and most credible explanations of uh, the observed climate change um, are, uh, are, are somehow uh, not trustworthy. You know, that, that kind of thing, I think, is, um, is the most dangerous thing we face right now. Well, on that note, <laughs> Dan and Michael, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. Thanks for having us. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.